but building also or growing our abilities. Like how do we, how do we collaborate as opposed to I win, you lose, which is mostly the model that is taught. How do we collaborate? How do I say, even if I disagree with you, how do I find some gem in what you say so we can find a way to connect? How, how do we, you know, how can we both win? Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author Cheryl Pallant, PhD, to discuss her book, Ecosomatics, Embodiment Practices for a World in Search of Healing. Cheryl talks about the importance of learning the personal language of how your body speaks to you, embodied spirituality and mindfulness, different kinds of intelligences, including the intelligence of intuition, and how consciousness doesn't end at our skin. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Cheryl Pallant, PhD, is an award-winning writer and poet, Reiki Healing Touch practitioner, somatic coach, dancer, meditator, and teacher. She has published more than 200 articles on dance, writing, healing, somatics, and spirituality, and is the author of several books, including Writing in the Body in Motion and Contact Improvisation. She teaches at the University of Richmond and leads workshops in the U.S. and internationally. She joins me today to discuss her latest book, Ecosomatics, Embodied Practices for a World in Search of Healing. Cheryl, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks for having me, Nick. Yes, well, thank you. I appreciate the time you're giving me this morning, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you about your book, Ecosomatics. I enjoyed it. I thought it was beautifully written, very powerfully written. But I thought that maybe the best place for us to begin would be with the title itself. Yeah, like what does that big word mean? Yeah, what is ecosomatics? Yeah, well, I'll say one thing. It's it's a new field. It's an emerging field. I think of the quick definition is that it's how somatics, which is the personal or subjective experience of the body, overlaps with ecology. So it recognizes that nature is not outside, nature is here. And that to recognize the connection or interface or interdependence between the two. So that's what's being explored through this new field. And that's what I've been exploring as well. Okay. Can we maybe go a little bit deeper on somatics itself? Because I think that there, and you address this in the book, there's often a disconnect in our culture with ourselves and our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. So somatics is a pretty big field that addresses, it often includes different dance practices or movement or even hands-on sorts of healing. And the idea is to make you become more aware of what's going on with your body. So 
traditionally with schooling, if you take an anatomy class, you know, they point out a picture of a body, it's generic body, and you learn the names and you learn the functions and it's shared objective information. But with somatics, that's the objective information is important, but you add into it the personal part. So instead of saying, you know, if we're talking about your head, you might say, yeah, but you know, it's like butterflies in my head. And it's not like that's like, oh yeah, right, right. No, that is key information. So, so you're experiencing your head as butterflies. So let's unfold that. And, and so it's all about connecting in with your personal body in whatever language, imagery, et cetera, that you use. So really getting to know yourself. And our culture is pretty good at not reinforcing that. Like they don't want you to get to know you personally. So any way that they can remove yourself from yourself is it seems like what they're about, which is in some ways why, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, oh, yeah, I have pain. And, you know, if you said you have butterflies, they'll go, huh? So instead what they have is like the one to 10 scale, like what degree of pain? And that's, that's their measure. Yeah. So somatics is, I mean, it's, I mean, I've been studying it for decades and finding out all the nuanced ways that one's body speaks to oneself and you really have to learn your personal language. It seems so interesting that I think that the term you use is something like a somatic illiteracy yeah. where we just don't pay so much attention to our bodies. We totally don't. I mean, so I always make this really bold statement in my, my university class, you know, bright-eyed students. And I say, so I would say that the majority of you are disembodied. And they go, oh. <laughs> and, and, um, and basically, I mean, I'd say that's true about Americans in general. Um, yes, we know when we're tired. Yes, we know when we're hungry. And yes, we know when we're sick. But beyond that, we get into really murky territory that we're not in touch with ourselves. So, you know, one of my favorite quotes is a James Joyce quote it's from the first line of one of his short stories. Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. And, and I think the majority of us do. So why do you have a headache? I don't know. Your, your eyes twitching. It is, you know, what, what gives you joy? My kids, you know, I mean, it, it's that much. Okay. So, or if you're teaching a, a, a movement class and it's like, okay, lift your arms. Why aren't you lifting them any more than this? I don't, I don't know, you know, so there's a real disconnect. And I find that there is incredible benefit for connecting with your own personal body. It gives you incredible wisdom, intelligence, feedback, insight, creativity. Mm. So yeah, and this book is devoted to that very thing, connected to what I refer to as the body, which is the earth, the earth body. So we're, you know, so not are we disconnected here, 
we're disconnected from that whole ecosystem. And I see it as what's contributing to the unease, dis-ease of self, our disconnection from others and why we want to, we'd rather punch another person rather than connect with another person. And, and also why the climate is going downhill because we don't see the earth as a living being. We just see it as a thing to be ignored or taken advantage of use. So, yeah. so there's my long question. <laughs> well, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yeah, it, it constantly amazes me that we are so disembodied in so many ways. And I know for me personally, this has also been a journey that I've had to go through in terms of recognizing the importance of our body and being embodied beings and finding a kind of embodied spirituality as well. Yeah, which is really potent. Yeah. Right? So, so often, and I'll say religion is about get away from your body. Spirituality runs a larger gamut, but then you say embodied spirituality, like, whoa, what is, what is that, right? But it means that we cannot deny our flesh because it's gonna, you know, when you're tired and you're like, I don't care, I'm gonna drive, you know, these three hours anyway, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you, there's only so long that you can deny your flesh before it will start hitting you on the head or do something worse. So, and, and that's what I see, you know, as a healer, that's what I see happens that people ignore, 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 and the body, you know, gives us a little pain initially, like, Hey, Hey, need your attention. We ignore. Okay. I'm going to hit you a little more, more tension. We ignore okay, I'm going to wallop you. Mm. And, and then next thing you know, it like, I just can't get out of bed or whatever the case may be. Mm. And yeah. it's like, so the body forces itself to be heard. Mm. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that sometimes when it forces itself to be heard, it can be, you know, not always, but sometimes it can be a little bit too late, you know, because serious illness can set in. Right. Right. Serious. Yeah. So I have found, so I can feel when like, maybe I'm going to get sick. Like I, I, things just get a little fuzzy. I can feel the temperature of my body change, which is not about the temperature of the room or the outdoors. And I've learned what works for me, hot bath. Mm. And it's like, bam, I'm back. Like it just somehow gives me the, uh, improves my equilibrium, my, you know, my homeostasis and I'm back. So other than a stomach ache here and there, because I've not eaten appropriate food because <laughs> it looks so good. I haven't gotten any of the illnesses that I got when I was younger because I pay attention and like, you know, I'm just going to give in to the nap. Yeah. I'm going to go to sleep at eight o'clock at night or yeah. whatever the case may be. Yeah, why it seems like so many of us, you know, are working at desks and either at a home or at an office. And I can tell you from personal experience, I've been undergoing this, I don't know, <laughs> odd journey where last 
November or so, I started developing this pain in my back shoulder and it would go down through my arms and I connected it to a variety of things. I connected it to emotional responses of not living in Colorado. I connected it to kind of like a little bit of the fear during COVID, but also just sitting for so long in front of the computer. And I had a flare up and because the history has been a long time, but I had a flare up in November and it took me months to get over it. And I saw a, a good friend of mine is a massage therapist. So I went to them. I started doing yoga. I went to acupuncturist and I healed it. But now I'm also recognizing that I feel it again. And I've been sitting a lot and not paying as much attention to my body as I should be. Right. Well, I think you were pretty astute in noticing like there's not just one cause because typically right. there isn't. It's usually kind of complicated. And, and certainly as we get older, some of these things like they set in and they establish yeah. themselves. Yeah. So, you know, whatever you can do. Yeah, we're, we're very much a sit down culture. So whatever we can do to kind of, you know, just keep our body just a little bit fluid. You know, my, my, I used to do, let's see, every now and then I would do like really extensive yoga practice, you know, and, and I love yoga, but my life is busy. And like everybody else, I have my excuses, but I've whittled it down to if I can do three sun salutations every morning, which I do. It takes me a big three minutes. It lubricates my body enough so that I can do what I need to do. And then when I start feeling like there's something more going on, and then that's when I do a longer practice. And then, you know, I do a lot of movement practices as well. So yeah, so sitting down, if if we have the if we have a type of job where we can just get up for a minute or stretch, you know, any of that. And it's a kind of mindfulness practice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I want to talk about mindfulness practices here in a little bit, but I like what you said that the three sun salutations is sufficient because in my brain, I'm like, no, I must do 12. And I think a lot of us maybe succumb to that kind of perfectionism in a sense or pushing ourselves. And it seems like throughout the book as well, you're like, just give, give yourself the permission. Right. Give yourself permission. So yeah, it'd be great if you did 20 or 30 minutes of yoga every morning. Right. Oh, and don't forget, you know, your meditation. Oh, and don't forget a walk or a jog. And next thing you know, it you know, two hours have passed. And so either you get up at four in the morning, which I'm not so keen on, or you get, you know, have some kind of lovely job where you can start working at noon. But a lot of us don't have that liberty. So I think it's more, it's more harmful to create guilt about what you're not doing. So I would say, okay, yep, three sun salutations, great. Oh, not 30 minutes of meditation, five minutes, great. 
you know, to just that you're doing anything is letting the your your being know that you are in support of health and you're not getting into you know a guilt negativity trip toward yourself which the culture loves to do you know we're never good enough I'm like no you know this is what i can do right now in the same way that sometimes when i'm working on a book yeah it'd be great if i could write 5000 words a day sometimes it's just one word right and Hey, I did one word. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The small steps and rewarding those small steps, I think. Right, rewarding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's. Since you had mentioned it, let's talk a little bit about mindfulness because, as I was reading your book, it came to me that oh, well, this is very much like mindfulness, but. When I say that, I have a background. I know Buddhism, mm -hmm. and I know that Buddhism and mindful practice is you also check in with the body, right? And you make that very clear, and you actually use a term, and you know, yes, yes, I understand that technically this is redundant, um, but I think it's important that you do this um, embodied mindfulness. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So, and I say that because, I mean, I've been a practicing Buddhist since I was a teenager. And what I've seen is people seem to have a, I'll call it a superficial understanding of a meditation practice, which they think that the goal is to be calm um, and peaceful. And that if they have, um, a disruptive thought or an uncomfortable feeling, what you're supposed to do is just kind of go away, go away, go away. Right. Which is a, a type of spiritual bypassing. So you're you're basically disembodying, cutting yourself off from really vital information. So instead, yeah, you have to include the body, otherwise you're back into that only heaven is valuable. So no more than heaven, the body is as valuable. So you're uncomfortable in your meditation. Okay, stick with it, just be aware of it. And, and typically, you know, what you resist persists. So just kind of stop denying, just pay attention and like, oh, wow, yeah. Gosh, you know, my neck is really painful. Oh, wow. And you're sitting there maybe through breath, you can soften it and it will go away. Or maybe, you know, and I'm figuring that you have a sitting practice. Maybe say, you know what, this is not going away. Okay, noted. And then, you know, you stop your sitting practice and say, you know, what? I'm gonna go to a chiropractor, get this checked out. So it's really valuable information. So yeah, too often we are looking for excuses and there's tons of them to not connect in or not connect with the natural world, the natural world, the natural world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have this artificial division between culture and nature, yeah. you know, and we think of ourselves as 
you know, different than other animals. And I think this is where this idea of an embodied practice and focusing in our bodies is so important is because I think it's easy to deny yourself, deny that, you know, we are human animals to deny our animality when we deny our physicality, when we deny our bodies, that we are embodied beings. Right. Yeah. I'm right there with you. And you know, something as simple as, and, you know, in my workshops, in my classes, I'll have people go outside, we'll, we'll talk about the five senses, and, and then just sit outside. And for just 10 minutes, not doing anything other than listen, look, feel. And then sometimes I'll have them write afterwards just to bring it one step more toward, toward awareness. But when they report back, they'll say like, there were, there were birds, there's so many different birds. Oh my God, you know, I was looking at the bricks nearby. Oh, the shape of them is just, like, suddenly the world becomes technicolor for them. And it's been there all along. And, and you know, that's also, you know, one of the themes of my book is that that's part of our problem, that we've been living in this very limited perceptual range. And, you know, it works to some degree, but we're at a place culturally, naturally, whatever you want to call it, where we're being called to open, to increase, to expand, to become that much more somatically literate, ecologically literate. I mean, just, you know, increase our, I mean, I don't see intelligence as being just one type of intelligence. I see there's like multiple types of intelligences. So just to be increasing any one of those so that we feel more connected, which means that we feel more at ease with ourselves more in community with others, including non-human beings and, you know, our whole environment, which is so critical right now. Yeah. There's yeah. still time. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hope. Let's hope. Yeah. It, 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 there are a couple of things that are coming to mind. I, you know, one of the things that you wrote that I really liked was that in regards to our relationship um, to our bodies and to ecology is that you noted that the ecology of our body is part of the ecology of earth. And that is so true. Yeah. And, and I'll let you comment on that, but I also wanted to just throw something in here. I just had a recent teaching an online class and it just began. And so I have students introduce themselves and it's a introduction to philosophy class. So I asked them to introduce themselves and to list some of the philosophical questions that they have thought about previously. And one student, his philosophical question was whether or not humans were the only intelligent uh, species in this in the universe. And my response was, humans aren't the only intelligent species on the planet. <laughs> yeah. You know, so there's this, and I guess this is the second thing is this idea of intelligence, because I think that that kind of comment from the student is about one kind of intelligence. 
But what you have noted and you mentioned is that there are a multiplicity of intelligences. So I know this is long-winded. So maybe let's start there. Let's start with the different kinds of intelligences. Yeah. So let's see. I mean, there's musical intelligence. Mm -hmm. There's not natural intelligence, which is like just being able to observe the natural world and make notice things. Let's see. And I'm going with, oh, let's see, Howard Gardner. You know, I think he's got, he's up to nine intelligences and I might even add some more. So there's spiritual intelligence. There's kinesthetic or proprioceptive intelligence. You know, I refer to somatic intelligence. Let's see. I'm sure I, yeah, I, I, I haven't cataloged them all yeah. in my brain right now, right. but oh, emotional intelligence, which I think it was Daniel Goleman made that really popular. So, you know, when we're in school, we get pretty much measured and schooled in one or two intelligence that's considered our IQ. And like, yeah, but so you can be great at numbers Hmm. and and bumbling about interpersonally. That's also an intelligence, by the way, interpersonal intelligence, which, yeah. So, and and which ones does the culture value? So something like a somatic intelligence is not well valued, which is why, like, when schools are doing cutbacks, they say, "Well, let's get rid of those silly dance classes, or let's get rid of that gym class because they just run around in the room." Why is that important? Well, yeah, it's important, and some of us, you know, that's the language that we speak. So, yeah, any of those, and we typically have strength in one, two, or three, but it's really interesting when we start developing a few of the others. And we just kind of watch our whole worldview shift. So it, it's pretty amazing when that happens. Yeah. So, yeah. Now, is the intelligence here, is it synonymous with ways of knowing? And the reason I ask that is because you talk about or you write about intuition quite a bit. Yeah. And would intuition be a intelligence or a way of knowing or again are they kind of synonymous yeah so now you're getting into language you know and it's like you know when you start talking like well what is soul and which is one of those words that drives me crazy because there's about 40 different definitions of it and some of them even compete with each other is intuition i think of and let's see I could consider an intelligence, I could consider it a skill. Mm. And again, it's not one that the culture encourages. You know, we encourage logic and reason. And we certainly could use probably some some people need more of that. (laughs) Some people have too much of that. Um, But what about, and I think of intuition, sometimes it's tied into that felt sense of your body but we're discouraged away from recognizing it. So it might be, so so my intuition has been poo-pooed over the years. And I I write about that in the book. But once I started doing, going through my energy healing training and I started giving it even more attention and realizing how present it is regularly. So how does it show up? So, you know, for me, I'll sometimes get like this little feeling. So, 
Like if I'm working on a client, you know, sometimes like I'm working on their ankles and I suddenly get, sometimes it feels a, a, almost like a panic, like, which normally I'm like, oh, that's silly. Just disregard that. There's nothing to be panicky about. But when I started exploring it, it was basically the way my intuition was working and said, move to this other part of the body. Okay. And I moved to the other part of the body. And then, yes, that was exactly where I needed to put my hands or do, do the work. But, you know, but I also have got an intuition coming to me as words, voices, and, and sometimes images too, for myself as, as well as for my clients. But, you know, we're, we're discouraged from exploring those because it's just, you know, oh, you're, you're just, and you're making things up. And, and tied to that is, you know, you're, you're just imagining things. I'm like, yeah, guess what? Imagination is a really great ability. It's another skill area. Like build your imagination because that's how we build new things or connect in. And so to use imagination as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about imagination, actually, because you do write about it as, as well. And it's something that seems to be diminished or in, in some aspects in our culture that we don't give it the due it deserves. Well, you know, it's child's play. Yeah. And, you know, you get to a certain grade and your teacher says, Cheryl, come on. Uh, that that's cute, but let's let's move on, right? And and so we're told not to be playing or imagining, and yet imagination is the very bridge that can get us to the next idea, whatever it might be. So and sometimes imagination comes to us and intuition too, symbolically, and and so we need to get familiar with it to be able to really utilize it. And it's just such a, a richness once we really tap into it. I mean, if it, you know, so in the first half of my life, I primarily used my imagination in, you know, writing short stories and writing poetry, but, and I figured that it was just something that you put on a piece of paper. But then when I was going through my training, my energy healing training, and they're like, and you're going to use your imagination. I was like, what? what, there's a use for it other than just this. And, and that's when it kind of lifted off the page and I started really tapping into it. And, and then it helped me understand too, you know, the visions I've had throughout my life too. Like, what were those about? You know, were they just kind of me being silly or sick or no, that was valuable information coming in. In the same way that I mean, that is partly what prompted the writing of this book, which is this huge intuitive hit that, and I've learned that when you get a big one, you can't say no. Mm. I, I don't, I mean, it's, it feels like if I were to say no, then that could negatively impact my health. So I say yes and say, okay, where are we going? Where are we going? And then, you know, of course, I, I, I mean, if it was going against my values, I, yeah, I probably would have said mm -hmm, no, but mm -hmm. 
but this was about healing and this is about raising consciousness. So I'm like, okay, I'm there. We're good. Yeah. Yeah. I liked in the book, you kind of the introduction to your discussion on intuition is you tell this story about you being in math class. I don't remember if it was like junior high or high school or something like that. And that leads you into this discussion of intuition. And it also leads into a discussion on misogyny and patriarchy uh, and a very specific kind of thinking. And one of the things that I've often said, and I've said this to other guests that I've spoken with, is that I often feel that my imagination has been colonized at, you know, by the culture, by media and whatnot. And it seems like and when I was reading your book and just listening to you, what always came to mind is, well, colonization is a activity of patriarchy. Right. Right. Yeah. And for the most part, our country is a puritanical culture, which really prefers things black and white. And for those of us who see some color, (laughs) we're like, there's more here. There's more here. Yeah. So I was one of the unfortunate girls. I think it was seventh grade that my algebra teacher said, oh, I I asked for a little help. And he says, you don't really need any help because math is for boys. And, you know, it's one of the few grade school experiences that, gosh, I wish I went, could go back there and really talk to that male teacher and say, excuse me, but because, you know, so for the listeners, what ended up happening was I was having an intuitive understanding about my math class and my teacher was leaving the class to coach the, I think it was the basketball team and we were on our own. So I kind of came up with my own system, which I found actually worked better than the one in the book got a very low grade because I wasn't following what was in the book. And I said, well, you know, it's better. And I have all the correct answers. No, you didn't follow the book. And, and then got a bad grade. It was like one of the only bad grades I had ever gotten. And then it wasn't until a decade or two later and I was watching a PBS show and there was my technique. right there and I was doing advanced math and yet all these years I thought I was just really bad at math Mm. so how many people male female or anyone else in between have also been discouraged from pursuing their abilities Yeah. yeah yeah we've been colonized by there's one way to do things my way my way or the highway Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, And it feeds into that idea of one way of thinking, you know, that sort of logical, rational thinking. And, you know, one of the classes I teach often is logic. Mm -hmm. And I will tell students in order to be successful in the class, and I will then interject, and this goes against everything I believe. But in order to succeed in this class, you just follow the rules. (laughs) (laughs) you know, because it is that step-by-step process and it would not allow for 
and maybe it's by definition, you know, logic, it just wouldn't allow for any alternative ways of knowing or intuition or anything like that. Yeah. But wasn't it logic at one point that basically proved that the earth was flat? Mm. And then there was a new understanding of logic that said, well, wait a minute. We think it's round. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that there was a logic behind that. There wasn't any kind of formal logic because I would say that, you know, the Greeks who first developed our logic also demonstrated that the earth was round. You know, it seems to me that the idea of the earth being flat goes into something else that you discuss at the very beginning of the book. And this is our filters. And I would suggest that flat earth is this filter of or worldview of misunderstanding Genesis in many ways, or, you know, maybe understanding a little bit better. But yeah, but I wanted to ask you about these filters because they are so important in uh, how we view the world, our perceptions. Uh, right. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the filters. Yeah. So for one, a, a filter is kind of, it might be a worldview or it might even be just how you're perceiving this very moment. Mm -hmm. So what are you focusing on? So, and and what we're focusing on is a result of culture, schooling, emotion, you know, the patterning of our brain, so our chemistry, so so many different things. So some people would, you know, I'm looking at your image, and maybe all, the primarily thing they see is like this whole stack of books. Right. And that's what they're primarily seeing. And then there's this head that every now and then moves secondary. But some of us reverse it and just see, you know, your head. And then they see the books and oh, oh, right. Those are books. Oh, yeah. OK. So what are you seeing? Or, you know, the, and then there's more than that, too. So, you know, one of the things I really appreciate, and this comes a lot from my meditation practice. I, I love having, finding out like what my conclusion is about something or one of my filters operating and then finding out that I was wrong. And it's like, wow. And I was so convinced. I was so convinced that what I was perceiving was the deal, was truth. So so, you, so I'll give you a really great example. So this was when I was just out of undergraduate school and, and I was working at a tele-surveying company. So I was on the phone all the time talking to people. And based on their voice, I would get an image of what they looked like. 90% of the time, 95% of the time, I was wrong, mm. just wrong. So I know that that's like one area, like no skill whatsoever, no skill whatsoever. But, you know, so, so when you are, let's see, what would be a filter? You know, another example is your, your, your child is acting unruly and you just think in terms of there's unruly children and, and ruly children, okay? Um, and you're fortunate that you have one or the other. 
Well, is there another way? And here's another word for filter, another way to frame this. Like, so look at your child and say, well, instead of really unruly, maybe it's got interests that you're not even aware of, that they're pursuing a certain interest, but you see their behavior as misbehavior as opposed to, you know, they're wanting to do X. So sometimes it's like a slight shift, but sometimes it feels like a huge shift and then it's like the whole world shifts. I mean, it rocks or it blows open. So I love when that happens. So, you know, another way I think of it as a lens, you know, you can focus in something small or you can widen it and get larger. Mm. And, you know, you're always going to be seeing different things. And the way that our perceptions, I mean, there's so much information around us at all times and we're constantly making choices. And I'd say sometimes consciously and largely unconsciously. And we have to be making those choices. Otherwise, we'd be overwhelmed by all the different information. Hmm. But what have we chosen? What have you chosen to hear? What have you chosen to look at? What have you chosen to feel? Hmm. So, you know, even something like, as my clients come to me with an ailment, and yes, you know, they're typically suffering. And I commiserate. But I also say, and what's the opportunity here? What is wanting your attention that you've not been given attention to? And after they go through the, well, hmm. Oh, oh, wait, I just saw something. You know, I just realized something. Oh. Yeah. 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 Well, it's getting rid of that or overcoming the dualistic thinking to a both and <laughs> you know uh, kind of thinking right yeah. yeah and that goes back to that somatic personal intelligence mm -hmm. so let's say you know you and i get into an argument about something and you know maybe it's like well you know maybe it was your your conclusion it was too loud and, and mine was, oh, no, it was too, I don't know, we'll just say too soft. Well, what if they were both true? And that in the way that you experience the world, it's that volume, high volume is, is part of your world. And it doesn't even occur to me because I'm always in a different place. So what if, well, you're right, or you're perceiving it that way. And I'm perceiving it this way. So I can't say that your perception is wrong necessarily. It's your perception. Right. And then when we move into that realm, then we're like, okay, so we can still talk, can we? Because I haven't demonized you as right. the other, right? Right, right. Yeah, which we like to do, take that next leap. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to do that. We often will say things are you know we use that verb there as if that is the reality where it often makes much more sense instead of saying like oh i find her very unfriendly or you know or saying you know she's unfriendly saying she's unfriendly. i find her unfriendly right you know right. or she's unfriendly to me or right. or 
I have difficulty connecting with her. Right. You know, that's funny because I find her so easy to connect to. Right. Right. right? And, you know, and there's so many different factors of these people or, or something really basic, like the, the thermostat in the room, you know, let's say it's, and, and it's so common, especially women will go, are you cold? I'm cold in here. It seems cold. Are you cold? You know, we need like the outside confirmation as opposed to, gosh, I'm cold. Then we typically, you know, some of us will go to the thermostat and look and say, wow, it's 85. I must be wrong. Hmm. No, no, you're experiencing your somatic sense is you are cold. So let's go there. Hmm. Something's going on that you're cold. So maybe, and if you start unraveling it, maybe you're nervous. Or maybe you're starting to get sick. Hmm. Um, or maybe, you know, somebody just walked in the room and you're like, oh, whoa, and they just changed something about your interaction. I mean, so you don't know. But to not discount that perception. Yes, that's the objective information. It says it's 85 in the room. And it's sometimes hard to measure, well, my temperature, my body temperatures, or my experiences. So to use that in really valuable information. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it seems like all of this is in connection to living an examined life in many ways. You know, I think that you wrote that as our going, when we have a tendency to go within, we're kind of superficial about it. And I think that this ecosomatics that you're exploring here is a way of expanding what an examined life is. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always been an introspector though, mm. so, and that's not always been encouraged. You know, I was the quiet one in class coming up, you know, observing things that nobody else was, but, but it also ends up being, I can provide information that others can't readily access. And, you know, I'm going to harp back on schooling. So, you know, teachers have a hard time of it. We have to, teachers have to, we've got, what, 30, 60 students in the class. And I'm even, I'm not even talking about college, talking lower grades. And, okay, let's just keep the students' attention, which is always challenging. So students end up, I mean, teachers often end up teaching to the lowest common denominator. So it's got the most people. And if you're one of the students like I was who had, you know, different sort of skill set, but I was also really quiet. So it wasn't like I was acting out, which some students will because they're bored because they're not being fed. So they act out. I'm not acting out. I'm just sitting there quietly and, I, but I'm not being fed either. So, you know, it ends up harmful on so many different levels. And I think that's largely what the culture is, you know, but we find if we're lucky, we find our pockets and we find our areas. And yes, this is largely what that this book is talking about is like, let's grow our abilities, even just a little bit more for your health, for how you engage 
and connect with others and then connect with the planet. Because I see that's been part of the problem that our, if you want to call it the ecosomatic intelligence has been minimal. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I agree with that completely. And in regards to our current ecological crisis, you know, you had mentioned before in the discussion something that brought to mind something that you noted in the book that you equated this that we're almost in this moment of an adolescent becoming an adult and this is a theme that has come up in many of the discussions that i've had is that we are in a kind of initiatory crisis right you know um, yeah i mean you know in my dark days and I, and I have them, I say, oh my God, you know, here we go. This is where there's too many of us who are just not making the right decisions, the smart decisions. Or, or we're at a place where we are really being encouraged and there's great necessity for growth. Hmm. And that we're at a place where, you know, we're learning how to consume differently. We're learning how to cohabitate differently. I mean, in many ways, our whole culture is being upended. And and we can't afford, I mean, we just don't have the time right now to kind of, oh, well, I'll get to it eventually. No, start examining what's going on. Yeah, there's, you know, these major floods happening from a, a little extreme rain system in New York and Vermont. And, you know, roads are being wiped out and homes are being carried downstream. So where do those people go? You know, so typically we may love having our own place, our own, I don't know, thousand square feet or 2000 square feet, but what happens when we're sharing it? Mm. And maybe even sharing it with not a partner, but a friend. And it's like, yeah, guess what? We're, that could be really a wonderful thing. Yeah. Just cohabitating it and sharing resources and sharing space. Yeah. But, but building also or growing our abilities, like how do, we, how do we collaborate as opposed to I win, you lose, which is mostly the model that is taught. How do we collaborate? How do I say, even if I disagree with you, how do I find some gem in what you say so we can find a way to connect? Hmm. How, how do we, you know, how can we both win? Hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 In- incredibly important. And towards the end of the book, your focus is I think on the end goal of all of this, which is to thrive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I much as much as everybody else, you know, I want to be happy or content or feeling like I'm living from my gifts. And I think we typically think of thriving as, yeah, I just got my Jaguar. It's my second one, yeah. and my house. Yeah. 6,000 square feet. Oh, in my boat. Yeah, I'm doing good. So, you know, thriving typically refers to a monetary measure. 
And I would challenge listeners to think of thriving in another way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what is your, what is your social capital? So, you know, how many friends can you reach out to, whether it's to get together for a glass of wine or call because you need to bring your car into the shop and you need a ride back, you know? So having perhaps a slew of friends like that is a kind of thriving. Or when you're in your despair place about whatever it might be, to be able to move from the despair into a place of finding that there's opportunities here. So, and I can go on about other ways of thriving, you know, including, you know, building on your intuition and intuitive ability or connecting in with the natural world and being fed by the natural world. So going out and just spending an afternoon watching hummingbirds, which I mean, the sound of them, the sight of them is just so magical. Or in my backyard, there's, I still have quite a few lightning bugs, which was also quite amazing. And to feel like that is a kind of thriving, yeah. to have that. And guess what? That's an, also an indication of the natural world is healthy, which means that probably my dirt quality or my air quality is better than some of my neighbors who don't have any of those. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like the idea that the, a thriving ecosystem is necessary for us to thrive and that it's a reflection of human thriving. Yeah. Yeah. And ecologists say diversity in the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. As opposed to, homogeneity yeah so so and we don't like to think in that like i'm going back to your bookshelves you know all the different colors of the books there you know without even knowing what the topics are and how they will all interact and support each other and yes there's you know with with trees you know the whole underground connection so yes, they like to be among other trees, but they like to also be with, with you know, other sorts of plants, which keeps the soil nutrient rich, which allows what food we grow and eat to be nutrient rich, which means we're getting all the vitamins and minerals that we need. So you can't pull one place out. Mm. So that's a kind of thriving. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wanted to also bring in energy because I know you do a lot of energy work and I think the way I'm going to try to because <laughs> I want I would like to ask you to comment on this but the way I'm thinking of this right now is making a connection between the energy and what we were just talking about in the sense that there is a I think you refer to it as a kind of a universal energy we could also call it maybe the Tao something like that but then there's an individual energy but it's not so separate that it seems like the energies blend in a way right Um, and i think the term you give is the biofield yeah yeah so you know the body i'm going to talk about the body and 
it's giving off all sorts of energy. So we're comfortable with the energy of the heart. We can measure it. You know, we measure the energy of the brain. But then there's an even more fine energy that, you know, I, I kind of settled on what the NIH refers to it, biofield, bioenergy. But, you know, yogis talk about it as prana and Chinese say chi and the Koreans say ki. So there's so many different words for it. But every one of us is giving off. I mean, one, yes, you see my physical body, but my body is also an energy body. And my body doesn't end just right here, but it goes further out. And some of us might only stay here. Some of us might go way, you know, yard or two or three out. And through the day, it even changes as well. So, you know, through my training, I've been learned how to really tap into it and perceive it. And I perceive it through touch, through my vision, and I'd say my inner vision too. And it shows it can be what is revealing your state of health or unhealth. And so, so for instance, and I've learned this from doing this work, when people are really thinking about a lot of stuff, their head, like right here, I can feel it like, I mean, I can feel all these things move, moving parts and they're bumping into each other and there's a lot of activity. If there's anger, I feel, and I'm not, I don't feel the anger only here, I'll feel it in different parts of the body. Anger is like a little jab. And if I'm moving my hands around, or even if I'm doing distant healing, I can feel kind of like a dull cut and it's a little ouch. So, I mean, so I've learned to feel the different energies and then even what they mean. And it, most of us, certainly Westerners are not trained in this. So years ago, I was teaching in Malaysia. How old was I? I was probably about 30 years old. And this man who worked at the hotel was also the driver, came up to me and he says, your aura is beautiful. Your meditation practice is wonderful and wonderful energy. I'm like, what? You, I mean, it was one of the first times that I encountered someone actually able to see. And this was not a pickup line. This is a very respectable person. And, and then, I mean, that really kind of set me to thinking like, what is this? And my travels and living in different parts of Asia have made me aware that, well, you know, some cultures see this regularly. You know, so I lived for a year in Korea. So many people just see it and it's a normal thing. And if you don't see it, they say, oh, oh, I'm sorry, you can't see it at all? Oh, hmm. well, maybe work on it, you know? And in this culture, it's like, you see what? Or you feel what? So, so yeah, I use it in my practice. So um, to bring people's level of health and well-being up. 
And I say well-being because it's not just your physical body, but it could be your mental, emotional, spiritual body. And and one of the, the gifts of the pandemic, when you know everybody had to kind of close the doors and only live on Zoom, or primarily, and I stopped seeing clients in person. So I started doing distant healing and tried it like, oh gosh, do I even believe in this? Mm, you know. Well, let me try it with some of my clients who I feel comfortable with. So if it fails miserably, there will be, you know, no, nobody will shame anybody. And finding that not only did it work and sometimes work better for some of my clients, I was amazed that I could perceive so much from a distance. And when I say distance, it might be the other side of town. It might have been 100 miles away, or it could be an ocean away because I worked on people in London and Berlin and it's like I can do that oh my gosh no one ever told me I can do this and I think it's an ability that most of us could access if we gave ourselves the opportunity to just try it and to practice it in the same way that how's your flute playing going oh you know I can't play flute well have you even tried oh no (laughs) so so we learn what skills we have based on our trials and then practice can make us I mean yeah some of us will play flute better than the others and some of us might be better at doing this energy healing than others too and I seem to have a, a knack for it which makes me happy because I I kind of relish being able to help people out and make them feel better than they have been feeling. Yeah. Well, and that's commendable. That's always, uh, should be all of our goals, I think, is to help in healing. Um, you on that. <laughs> yeah. I, I do have a question, though, um, in regards to the energy and the biofield. You also discuss consciousness. And much of the book is about this transformation of consciousness, but you wrote that consciousness doesn't end at our skin. And so I'm curious, is consciousness, what is the relationship between consciousness and the biofield? Is there a connection? Yeah. So I think, you know, our awareness, you know, awareness and consciousness are also terms that get changed interchangeable, interchangeably. And, you know, so, you know, the, the biofield is here, it's right here. And we've created, even though you're, I don't know, are you about 2000 miles away from me right now? We've created this connection. So within quantum physics, quantum physics doesn't recognize distance and time the way you and I traditionally do. So, but are you aware of the field? right so so okay so now we have oh it's there so if we were take a moment and i would say i just breathe just kind of for, for, for what for first thing is connect with your body take a few moments to do that and then you know some of us might see the field with our eyes some of us see it with our inner eyes Some of us might feel, 
So just pick up on what do you start perceiving? So I say perceiving to open whichever door of perception it's going to work on. So right now, as I'm doing this, I can feel my, my own field get a little, feels like it just got a little lighter and I want to say a little more peach colored. And I feel like yours did too, you know, and, and we're, and we're, we're interacting in this way. And we would probably see some areas of, um, and I'm not, I don't get real specific like this, but there might be another color like green. I'm seeing a little bit of green actually right about at our heads and hearts, which would make sense because I think our hearts are open to each other and green typically refers to that. So can we just perceive it? We start perceiving these things that we maybe didn't even know exist. And then our, our frame of consciousness grows. What we believe is possible shifts. So, you know, we're constantly kind of changing. I'll, I'll say the remote. I mean, I did grow up with, you know, you turn the knobs, you know, so whichever the metaphors you want to use, turn the knob, pick up the remote. And, and that changes what you start perceiving. And then because of what you're perceiving, that changes your filter <laughs> and it changes what you believe is consciously possible. So, you know, so, so often on my table, my clients will say, they're not sure where I am in the room mm. because they, you know, sometimes they, they open their eyes because they think my hands are on their shoulders because they feel hands on the shoulders, but I'm, I'm at their ankles. So what is that about? Mm. So, and as much as I love language, I kind of try to not pinpoint to the exact words because sometimes using language will limit perception. Hmm. And I really like to expand perception. So I do a lot of workshops geared precisely for that to get people to expand their perception, both experientially or to use. I mean, I often work with a lot of people who are journaling or, or, or professional writers or amateur writers but to be able to expand the perceptions. So that's how I'd answer that question. Okay. Good. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. It was yeah. just something that came up as we were just talking and also as reading your book. So I, I do understand that we are getting close to the end here. I'm trying to think if I had any other questions for you in regards to all of this. I think that I'll ask you, and you may have already addressed this, but this is something that I like to ask uh, some of the guests, uh, especially those who are concerned with our environmental situation. Mm. And that is, do you have hope? Oh, some days, yes. Some days, no. Uh, you know, but hope, I'm going to say hope is a, a verb. Mm. And I think that we each must be taking actions toward the salvation of 
humanity and the other critters. I mean, the, the I think the planet will continue. It will do what it needs to do. But, you know, will I still be able to go to Starbucks? Maybe not. <laughs> but I have hope when I think in terms of we're at a place, you know, at a cusp of we are at a tipping point of also expanding our abilities and that that's what we need to be doing expand our abilities whether it's in um, perceiving or embodiment and it also means um, doing some really um, other basic things like okay don't use those plastic straws anymore or can you plant some native plants or even and even if you have just an apartment and you have a little box that you put out your window, you know, these little, they call these um, rewilding spaces so that, you know, the insect or the bird has like this one little place as it's flying from here to there can rest. So any little thing we can do is engaging hope and engaging that thriving. But if we're just like, uh, we're toast, Right. You know, I'm just going to six pack it with the beer and then we're part of the problem. And it's not like we can't have our drinks and relax at times because we have to. I'm all about balance. But you never know what could happen. So and I tend to focus on my little I mean, yes, the big world, but also the little world. And if I can make impact in my little world, then I am part of the solution right so in whatever way you can yeah 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 thank you for that and i think that you know the work you're doing is important i think that this requires examination self-examination it requires re-embodying and I was thinking when you mentioned rewilding, I made a note here, rewilding and re-embodying that, yeah. you know, there's that sense of, because our bodies are a little wild at times, I think. Yeah. Uh, but and, I, and, and along with that, I'll add compassion. Yeah. Yeah, which, for sure. Yeah, self-compassion. Yeah. Compassion for self, compassion for others. Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you, what do you have coming up next? Oh, probably a coffee soon after here. Yeah. So, I mean, I regularly offer workshops and some are online and some are in person. So I believe it, um, and I've slipped the exact date. There's some Saturday in November where I'll be doing an afternoon workshop with the Theosophical Society of America. So people can reach out to me um and find that date specific date and i'm also working on an in-person workshop in santa monica california also i mean let me know you want me to come to you i will come to where you are if you can find a group but i also i mean really um tomorrow night i'm starting one of my online groups so people are all over the place it's already a closed group but there may be another one that i'll be forming so yeah, I do, depending on the time of year and what I might be doing, there's different workshops going on and people can find me at my website. So that's 
CherylPallant.com. And, and if I can, since I have, let's see, I don't know how the, do you mind if I show my book? Oh, no, go ahead. Here, I don't know how, and there's my name. So it might be backwards. I don't know how it shows up, but you get, you'll get the idea. Right. You know, that is not my hand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, so my website has a list of what's going on, my various workshops. Okay, wonderful. Well, I will put a link for the website in the show notes in the video description. And I will also put uh, links in for Ecosomatics so that people yeah. can easily find the book. Yeah, and I do, you know, my energy healing with people anywhere, literally in the world. So reach out if you want to give that a try or show up here in my. Richmond, Virginia is where I am. So yeah, wonderful. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, yeah. I uh, really appreciated speaking with you. I very much appreciate speaking with you. It's always good to meet Ken, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, thank you again. And that's a wrap on episode 96 of Herbal Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you're part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work and please support my work, then consider becoming a patron. You can find a link for Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd prefer to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. Either way, I will be tremendously grateful for whatever support that you can provide. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family members, coworkers, anyone that you think will enjoy it. And please share it on social media too. That really is one of the best ways that you can help and support the podcast. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I sure hope that you do, then please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your Rebel Spirit.